Hello and welcome to Questonia. I'm Stuart Garlick and I'm joined by Marius Howland. In this special edition of Questonia, we'll be looking back at the big issues of 2020 and looking ahead at 2021. We'll be looking at the government's coronavirus response in Estonia, the upcoming marriage referendum in Estonia, and also the state of the opposition right now. How well are they doing? Could they be doing a better job? Do they need to make some changes to their approach? So, let's dive in. In the, in the beginning of the virus response in March, um, the, uh, the government seemed to grasp the opportunity to uh, take control of things. Uh, it established an emergency situation, which is uh, uh, second only to a, to a full-on state of, state of emergency in Estonian law in terms of government control. Um, and they, they were quite impressive. They, uh, they, they made changes that were related to coronavirus response. They, uh, w- when they spoke, they spoke decisively, uh, and um, they didn't allow leaks, uh, or, or at least they didn't seem to allow leaks uh, during the first wave. Um, and as such, I felt that uh, people responded to what they were saying, and that um, p- people developed a sense of, if not trust, certainly as if they understood what the government was going to do next um, and they could plan accordingly. Um, the approach has been a bit more muddled recently and um, I, I just wonder, um, for example, uh, in the decision to close schools, um, what people are seeing now are um, swift and not particularly trackable uh, changes in government decision making. Um, and maybe related, we're seeing lots more leaks from sources close to government ministers. We're seeing uh, um, a, a lot more of a disunited front on the part of the government when it comes to its approach to communications and media. D- do you get any relation between the um, difficulty in creating a unified communication strategy and the difficulty in... Um, uh, putting together a um, good approach to the second wave of coronavirus on behalf of the government? Well, uh, I, at the first wave in March, the the government had, on one side, it had the disadvantage of not knowing what's going on um, and not having a playbook to go after because it was a new situation for everyone, for all governments all around the world. At the same time, this was also an advantage because the situation was so so new and so unknown and it looked so scary that people were quite uh, willing to obey it and maybe even um, approach this uh, distant learning and uh, work from home office etc as a some as some sort of a, an adventure quite many people were really happy to sort of relocate to their to their um, summer houses and uh, and live like that of course it uh, the luxury of remote work doesn't doesn't uh, apply to everyone. People in blue collar jobs and uh, and shops, etc., don't didn't really have this option. However, the government uh, uh, and and of course it was it did present a fantastic op- opportunity for the government to shine as uh, as uh, big heroes, and they did take advantage of that uh, lavishly with the 
daily uh, press conferences that uh, went on for hours where every every uh, minister had uh, had uh, his um, uh, uh, opportunity to shine as as a hero in fighting uh, in fighting the uh, the virus when when uh, when the the virus subsided over the summer however i think the government was too preoccupied with um, uh, other topics that were on their mind out of their own uh, um, quite oftentimes problems created by themselves and uh, um, the second wave really has been uh, has been an example of not being prepared and uh, the other thing we've seen a lot of is uh, the um, a mixed voice when it comes to communicating the coronavirus response to the public. And um, I feel at least that this has confused uh, the public uh, because um, uh, and, and until I think September, uh, the uh, acting head of the health board was uh, Marianne Harmer, um, um, who... Um, I thought personally did a good job in um, communicating on the more severe side uh, what she felt restrictions should be. Um, she she was, uh, you could argue, more on the COVID alarmist side of things rather than the COVID skeptic side of things. And um, But uh, she, she gave good scientific reasoning why she wanted certain things to be done. Now, in theory, at least, the government had handed over the coronavirus response to the health board. So whatever the acting head of the health board said, in theory, goes. But that didn't quite happen in the summer. And what you generally got in terms of me media communications was uh, shortly after Harmer had given an interview, uh, you'd then get the head of the scientific council, Tartu University's Iria Lutzar, uh, coming in and um, in the press and saying, well, we don't have enough evidence for X or I'm not sure that we need Y. Um, she was actually the person who was uh, communicating the fact that, for example, Estonia would not be uh, going to a Finnish-style coronavirus testing of the entire population because um, it, uh, um, it it was, if not a waste of money, certainly um, um, too much cost for the benefit, she felt. Um, so you, you, you had this kind of good cop, bad cop combination when it came to the scientific communication of the virus response. Um, has this been beneficial or damaging to the virus response and to the uh, popular perception of how serious coronavirus is? hard to say i think we can uh, maybe really look into it uh, um, a, a few years on in hindsight if we compare data from uh, the approach of different countries and the results in different countries but um, in general i think uh, in a way this also might be helpful in a, uh, for uh, certain people because it gives um, everyone uh, a much bigger personal responsibility to uh, to understand how you actually can protect yourself and other people best and uh, and figure this out on your own and then uh, follow this uh, uh, this understanding better than when the government uh, in a very authoritarian way tells you what to do and what not to do so I don't know. I mean, when we look at at the, the scale of the restrictions uh, uh, that apply, uh, for example, in Lithuania, and then the incredible 
incredible uh, infection rate, then um, perhaps uh, the more the stronger restrictions are not beneficial for for the public health at the end of the day. Well, and certainly Estonia has some of the most uh, lenient restrictions in the European Union when it comes to handling the virus. And um, uh, whether whether one agrees or not with those restrictions, um, we we do have uh, a better situation in terms of infection rate and percentage of people hospitalised than than Lithuania has, um, and marginally better than uh, what Latvia has at the moment. So uh, does that does that say to you that uh, the response has been effective in terms of putting the onus on individuals to decide what they do to keep themselves safe? Well, uh, if we look at the overall number of the of the country in total, that makes sense. Yes, but we, uh, in fact, we need to look at it in a regional way, and there we see a, a quite a quite a big difference. Um, the highest rate we have is in uh, Idaviroma, which is uh, northeast Estonia, mainly Russian-speaking or majority Russian, Russian-speaking county, and uh, Tallinn. And, and uh, I saw some data where Tallinn was split into regions, into areas. The highest rate, again, is in Lasnama, which is a predominantly Russian-speaking uh, suburb. We have a higher infection rate among the Russian speakers, if I if I may say it like that. This has been something that the government has really pain, um, painstakingly been avoiding to vocalize, but that's actually the reality that the numbers tell us. The Russian speakers, when they when the virus first hit, they rallied behind the Estonian media. They, the usage of uh, ETV Plus, the Russian language TV channel of, of ETV, went up. Uh, the usage of Delphi in Russian went up. Uh, and people were really uh, using local information and uh, getting advice how to behave. I, I haven't seen data about media usage in the, in the autumn, but... Uh, it might very well be that over the summer this has uh, uh, has decreased and uh, people are not getting their information and uh, and they uh, from the Estonian channels and the messaging they get from the government is uh, is too mixed or doesn't reach them in a proper way and uh, the other thing is also that uh, on um, on very very practical uh, level. Uh, one uh, measure that to contain the virus has been uh, discussed since uh, the very beginning. It was first the proposal by the Social Democrats um, to uh, start the sick, the pay for sick, sick leave from day one. At, um, up until the end of this year, it's, it's uh, the first three days of your sick leave, you don't get any pay, which means that people in blue-collar jobs, which is the, uh, mainly held by the, by the Russian speakers, they can't afford um, to go on sick leave. Even people with, uh, with mild symptoms, even people with positive corona tests have been going back to work in Idaviroma throughout the autumn. We saw this, uh, this kind of uh, bits of news. 
And this has been a measure that has been blocked by Martin Helme personally. So it was finally approved in December and is going to, uh, uh, is going to uh, uh, get enforced from 1st of January, which is way too little, way too late. And these are the two main reasons why the surge in Idaviruma and in Lasnama, people are not well informed enough and people um, cannot afford to be on sick leave. Yeah, it, it's, it seems like an absolute scandal, the idea that uh, um, pe- people would still not be paid uh, for the first three days of sick leave, even if they had coronavirus, um, because uh, it, it's, it's certainly not something they brought upon themselves. Um, I believe the original reason for uh, having three days unpaid uh, sick leave at the beginning of someone's sick leave was to um, uh, was was to take was to take away any temptation for um, um, scrounging um, essentially. But uh, um, th- we, we're, we're living in a different reality now, and um, surely the law has to change to accommodate that. As I said, it's uh, just too little, too late, and this was. Uh... This was uh, personally blocked by Martin Helmer during uh, several, several months. Laws, law, change, law change proposals coming from uh, Daniel Geek. He just bluntly, bluntly blocked uh, months and months. If I if I can just um, ask as well about uh, Ule Madisa, the Chancellor of Justice. Now, um, she is the um, uh, effectively the head of the judiciary in Estonia, uh, and um, uh, she's the person that uh, the media and the politicians go to for advice on whether something is or isn't constitutional uh, before a law is passed. And um, she's briefed the media several times that uh, something like a mask obligation, for example, but not in, but not only, uh, would be unconstitutional in Estonia. Now, um, I, I want to ask two questions around this. Uh, one, is it uh, is it helpful that the head of the judiciary is taking such a strong role in the media uh, around coronavirus response and? Um, is what she's saying um, helpful in terms of her having these strong opinions on these things and broadcasting them so often? Hard to say if it's helpful, but um, in a way, again, it might it might relate to uh, the role of constitution in in the people's uh, opinion and the mind and uh, and the role of uh, personal responsibility, because. Um, Estonians really uh, regard the constitution uh, very, very highly. This is uh, an important issue. And uh, with Ulla Matis uh, vocalizing her opinions on it, at least this gives the signal that uh, someone is there watching out for the for our, our constitutional rights. So uh, even if, you know, you you don't need to change the constitution in order to make your private individual decision yes i am going to wear a mask this is uh that's the point kind of for me if they, but if someone is uh at least watching out and saying this might be uh, not, not the constitutional uh, um order to give but as a as a responsible individual you are free to make this decision. And uh, it gives uh, some sort of a psychological reassurance, perhaps, that uh, uh, that uh, someone is there looking out for the constitution to be uh, followed. 
Yeah, and, and like, like you say, you shouldn't need a change in the constitution to look after other people. But it seems like many people um, don't view, view, it as, view it as freedom, that they don't have to wear a mask indoors. And I'm just wondering, um, have, have I misjudged Estonians and their aggressive individualism? Or, or um, is this a group of people who would uh, be sceptical of any order to do anything? Uh, what, what, what are we seeing here? Is this, is this a cultural attitude towards being told to do things essentially well there's a there's a there's a certain amount of people in every society who are skeptical of all these uh, of of all these rules and regulations but um, i mean we did have this uh, anti-mask demonstration um, a month ago or so and it was not terribly well attended it was nothing really in comparison to what's been going on in germany for example and um here again, I mean, this was uh, this was one moment where I, there were a few hundred people on the Freedom Square, so it was it was really marginal. Uh, and this was a moment where I said, "Thanks God, we have uh, the far right in the government, because otherwise <laughs> they would have been riding on this anti-mask, anti-vax uh, uh, platform and uh, would have stirred up uh, uh, the." Uh, reluctance and uh, the protest against uh, against the lockdown measures and against these restrictions, like like nothing else. That's uh, that's how uh, their peers have uh, have acted in other European countries, and and the, the U.S. If you like, so um, in in that way, it was a, it's a good thing they are reined in by their government responsibility and they can't really go wild about uh, this whole score, uh, whole corona skepticism and conspiracy theories that they usually uh, tend to uh, follow even though i mean minis- advisors to martin helmer have uh, voiced co- quite uh, quite interesting um, conspiracy theories around the corona and uh, and uh, so on and uh, martin Helme himself obviously suggested using goose fat as a remedy at first, but um, in in a larger picture, they have not been able to roam free around these uh, conspiracy and corona skepticism uh, theories, and they have not been able to ride and uh, grow this wave of uh, of uh, skepticism, which is a good thing. One one more point about COVID is uh, the the economic relief has been seen by many to be uh, unequal at times. Now, uh, Porto Franco is a development in the port of Tallinn, uh, uh, run by a gentleman named Rauno Teder, um, whose father has been a donor to Keskerikond, the largest party in the coalition. Um, the two things are not necessarily li- linked, um, but uh, various uh, media outlets. Uh, looked into a potential link between them um and it it's just part of um a seeming tendency on the part of government coalition parties to reward um either donors or uh traditional businesses rather than for example tech businesses in terms of covid relief um the relief money comes from credex which is the uh body charged with overseeing um financial relief to businesses and um tech businesses such 
does uh, Cleveron, which makes package robots, which is um, arguably one of the most innovative companies currently in Estonia, have received nothing from Credex uh, and have uh, argued that the COVID relief has been unequal and unfair on them. Um, what, what's your view on this? And um, to what extent are we seeing cronyism in COVID relief? Well, sadly, this is uh, this is a so, sort of an uh, automatic knee-jerk reaction of uh, of governments uh, and and the parties well, about uh, the Credex relief. Uh, the the only thing we need to know is the head of Credex resigned. So uh, this was clearly a response to uh, the handling of uh, the Porto Franco, which is a luxury real estate development one sector that has not been affected by the COVID pandemic at all, uh, looking at the house prices in uh, Tallinn. Um, and um, yes, um, clearly uh, the government, the, the far right being in the government does mean that they also have used every day of their position there to increase their power, which also means that they are positioning their own people into the boards of gov- different government agencies, including agencies that are handling the, the pandemic relief. So uh, that that's why the decisions um, going in the way they do. That um, uh, tech companies are uh, are not are not getting any relief, but also tourism industry is just uh, has just been neglected. Uh, criminally, tourism that makes up 10% of Estonia's GDP has received so little that it's uh, completely ridiculous. And uh, Martin Helme has um, has uh, said it quite clear. There is no political appetite to support um, this industry. Obviously, if you want to keep the country closed in, closed in and uh, and uh, isolated, you don't need uh, tourists to come in and stir things up. And to make the country, and maybe somebody will like the place and want to settle here, you know, God forbid. So, so <laughs> that's the that's the overall attitude, which um, is very very clear. And um, indeed, uh, the uh, former head of Credex actually wrote to Prime Minister Ratas to say uh, um, a loan of 45 million euros to Porto Franco would damage the reputation of Credex potentially permanently, which um, has been the case, as we've seen. There were other issues, and uh, I'm, um, I'm, I'm speaking with a huge bucket of salt here, but of course the issue that was on the mind of every Estonian in 2020 was whether marriage can be between a man and a woman or uh, between, um, between uh, the same gender as well. Um, I'm joking, of course, but uh, there is a referendum coming up um, uh, next year in the spring um, on whether the constitution should expressly say marriage is between uh, a man and a woman. Now, varying views on this. Um, Some people have said that Estonian family law already says that, so there's no need for a referendum on a constitutional change. But let's row back because we've not talked about this on the podcast before. Mm. Um, Why is there a referendum particularly, and and why are we debating the need for a referendum at a time when surely all hands should be on deck regarding COVID? Yes, to... uh, roll back to where it started. This was a dark horse planted into the coalition agreement by ECRE. And uh, obviously this was also uh, a strong issue 
that uh, ECRA campaigned on. They uh, they have said that since uh, Estonia adapted the cohabitation law in um, uh, 2014, um, that they they want to uh, roll this back. So their suggestion was to uh, to uh, to uh, roll back the the cohabitation law, which is gender neutral, which means that uh, same-sex partners can go and register their um, their partnership at a notary. Um, and uh, sort of the, the far-right and traditional family uh, movement led by Varro Vogleid and uh, was uh, something that ICRA campaigned on. In the coalition agreement, they were not able to to agree on uh, to get the other partners to uh, to uh, uh, abolish the cohabitation law as a compromise, uh, um, as uh, uh, Miley's reps uh, called it. Uh, what did she say? A respectful compromise was to hold this um, this uh, referendum, which was to be held actually at the same time with uh, local elections due um, next October. Now uh, the referendum was brought forward because the center party doesn't really like the idea of holding this ref- referendum. This is uh, very inconvenient for the center party, in fact, because in the referendums, the electorate of local elections and the electorate of uh, referendums in Estonia do not overlap completely. So people who, uh, for example, uh, in, in local elections, already 16-year-olds are allowed to vote. Also, um, registered residents who are not Estonian citizens are allowed to vote in local elections. So uh, the Centre Party was very worried about ending up in a situation where, um, for example, Russian grey passport holders would come to the, ele- uh, to the election, um, to the polling station, and uh, find out that they are only allowed to vote in the local elections, but not in the referendum. That would have uh, angered their voter base. So um, uh, as a result of Mart Helmer's uh, comments about um, to Deutsche Welle in the, in the autumn, where he uh, uh, suggested that gays should run to Sweden, the, the great compromise of the governing government coalition was that the referendum is going to be held uh, earlier in April already. So this is, has been something that ECRA has really uh, held on to as their red line. But I'm at, at the at this point, I'm not even sure any longer that uh, that uh, this red line will hold. Meaning that uh, if if for some reason the referendum is uh, uh, is not going to be uh, held, that they will walk away from the government. Because uh, also uh, the position of Martelma as a minister in the government uh, was a red line, and then Martelma had to resign and. Um, they did not walk away from the government. Yeah, he he resigned because of comments he made about uh, Joe Biden after Joe Biden won the election in the United States. Um, and uh, actually, there, there is a part again to play by uh, Ule Madis, uh, Chancellor of Justice here, because uh, she said several things. She said that uh, the uh, referendum should not take place at the same time as lo- local elections, but she but she's also said that. Uh, 
whatever the result of the referendum on whether marriage should be between a man and a woman, uh, it cannot affect the status of the cohabitation bill. Um, uh, so uh, she's viewing them as two very separate legal cases, which I, I think is probably on balance correct. Um, but uh, the, the third thing she's she said is that... Uh, Although this referendum was billed uh, initially uh, when it was um, uh, floated as an advisory referendum, she said that w whatever the result is of the referendum, it must be abided by by government. Now, what does this mean in practice? Does this, does this mean that as soon as the referendum is passed, we begin uh, the process of changing the constitution? Or does it mean something else? Well, uh, the, the coalition has been careful enough not to uh, give the referendum itself a constitutional power. Uh, which means, which is why they uh, they want to word it as an advisory referendum. And um, uh, Rattas has actually demonstrated his uh, either ignorance or cynicism by saying that if that a, a yes answer means that the situation uh, or the definition of marriage cannot be changed, whereas that a no answer of the referendum would not change anything at all. So. Um, this is a kind of a, either shows his ignorance in in matters of democracy or or it's just a cynical way of putting it because the government really is uh, the, why they avoided uh, making it a constitutionally binding referendum in the first place is that uh, this would have had a consequence if if it's a constitutionally binding question then uh, in case of uh, a no the, gov uh, the government would have to um, resign and new elections would be called. And they, this seemed too, too much of a risk to them. Of course, it's, not, uh, it's not, still not clear if the, if the referendum is going to be held because uh, the opposition is, uh, is going to use um, obstruction tactics in the parliament. The parliament has to pass a bill to hold the referendum and... Uh, decide upon the question. So uh, the the opposition has um, a legal instrument of obstruction through proposing many, many amendments, many, many additional questions to the referendum that the parliament then has to um, has to discuss and debate uh, according to um, its uh, uh, household rules, which means that the referendum actually cannot uh, cannot be held in time because the bill about it has to be passed at least at the latest three months before the date which uh, the government hopes to be on the 18th of April which uh, gives us 18th of January as a as a final date of the bill to pass the parliament it's not just Rattas, though. I mean, the head of the judiciary has said that the um, the referendum result must be abided by, which is quite strong and I would say quite a political thing to say about something which is an advisory referendum, according to Rattas. So, um, what what is what is behind this push by the judiciary to make it legally binding? It will depend on the, on uh, on the way the question is posed, but uh, I think. Uh, in general, it's it's a waste of sort of democratic resources to ask something that has no legal power at all. Okay. Because um, also looking at the opinion polls, I mean, the big majority of Estonians really don't consider this a pressing issue. They consider this referendum as 
completely unnecessary and especially in this time of the COVID. And also uh, the argument of the of the uh, right uh, or the far right rather that uh, you forced this referendum upon us by um, passing the cohabitation bill is wrong because uh, in fact the mindset of the whole society has grown much more liberal during the years um, where uh, the majority of the Estonians now support the cohabitation, the gender-neutral cohabitation law. And even though the, the support for gender-neutral um, marriage is, um, is not yet uh, more than half, it, it is also growing. I mean, there was this uh, peculiar uh, situation when uh, the Green Party ish, uh, started a petition about uh, gender-neutral marriage as a response to the whole uh, really uh, violent and ugly uh, uh, rhetoric uh, about the referendum and about the gays have to run to Sweden and so on. The Green Party started a petition to um, uh, enable um, freedom to marry to everyone. And this uh, this collected uh, more than 30,000 uh, signatures already. So uh, uh, there was a big uh, upsurge. And this also uh, was uh, is one of the main reasons why uh, ASD 200 has increased its uh, support numbers so, so greatly, because ASD 200 was actually the one who sort of picked the fruits of this petition, even though the Greens started it. Yeah, and SD200 is a topic I want to close the podcast with, so yeah. uh, put, let's put a pin in that. But uh, um, this this whole referendum debate uh, seems to be something to rally the ECRA base, but um, actually it's puzzling to me, maybe because I don't understand populism, but um, they were already coming out to vote anyway in the local elect. Is there really any mileage for ECRA in base-rousing tactics? I mean, like you said, uh, the majority of uh, quiet conservatives, shall we say, uh, in Estonia, who don't call themselves populists, uh, think that this is a waste of time. Uh, They want to get on with uh, more important things as they see it in government. Um, Of course, the majority of um, Social Democrat and Reform Party supporters feel feel that way as well. so th- this is, to me, a case of ECRA saying, OK, being in government and having to do boring managerial things is hard. We want to get back to one-issue politics and rabble-rousing and base-rousing, but that's not how government works. And it, in, in a sense, it's getting them back to their comfort zone, to their wheelhouse of one-issue politics. But it's not going to benefit ECRA in the long term, it seems to me. And is there any is there any benefit to ECRA as it seeks to become the largest party in a future government coalition uh, in this kind of tactic, which doesn't really build a wider coalition and um, and just really solidifies a base that was already theirs anyway? I must say I agree with you. I mean, the main uh, sort of stakeholder in this is uh, is the far right and the far far uh, sort of super conservative Christian. Uh, movement of uh, around Varovoglite and Objective, and uh, that has been uh, sort of ECRA's uh, main promise to them, and they are then uh, rallying and motivating their own followership to uh, to uh, go and vote for ECRA. So um, it's it's really uh, sort of caving in into this uh, one issue uh, uh, question. 
the perhaps the the only uh, the only uh, track to expand support on this issue uh, for the party is to uh, tap into some Russian votes because um, uh, the Russian speakers tend to be more conservative in their worldview and this. Um, sort of anti-gay agenda is something that is also being uh, strongly supported by Russian state media that uh, that many of these people follow. So um, there is a segment of voters that they can attract with that policy. But other than that, uh, it's not really helping them to mainstream their position in the society. That's true. The uh, last topic I want to discuss on this podcast is uh, the the opposition, uh, one party which has been um, quite aggressive in forwarding an, um, um, a, an agenda for a more managerially run Estonia where things are as it sees it fairer is Estonia 200, SD 200. Uh, now, this is a party that doesn't have currently any members of parliament and yet in September and October opinion polls, it was running as the second most popular political party according to uh, those polling figures um what do we make of uh, estonia 200 as a party it's taking some of the more liberal agenda of the classical reform party um and um but but it, it's it's wrapping it in um a um in, in in this idea of uh creating a new estonia so two questions really can it work and um is it is it needed in an Estonia that already has the Reform Party and where there isn't a great deal of clear blue water between the two, as far as I can see? Yeah, you are absolutely right. But the dynamics of the polling numbers shows that the SD200 has gained a lot of supporters from people who used to be undecided. So it's not, it has not taken away voters from the Reform Party. It has not taken away voters from the centre party, but rather from, and nor from ECRE, of course, but rather from the undecided sector. And there's always some sort of an appetite for a, for a new power, for, a, for an alternative, because people are a bit fed up by the opposition that is completely useless, not understanding that the uh, opposition really has... Um, only limited opportunities to do something about uh, agenda setting or influencing their policy because of the majority they they lack in the parliament. So there's there's always this hunger. But um, before the last elections, um, I remember AST 200 um, being looked at as the powerful newcomer, and all it took to uh, shatter their uh, uh, success in ratings was one uh, one uh, provocative uh, advertising campaign. One one advert was all it took to push them under the five percent uh, uh, threshold. So uh, um, I would be um, careful in putting too much hope into them. We have still more than two years to go until the elections, and uh, everything can change. But it's true that being um, a new, fresh face perhaps helps to gain support when people are kind of disappointed of the political establishment. Mm. And um, 
it 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 seems to me at least my personal opinion would be that uh what uh what is needed in opposition is a uh strong progressive alliance and um sd200 appears and you can correct me if i'm wrong here to be um to to be uh tailoring its uh, its policies and its ideas towards supporters of the reform party towards uh, soft centrist conservatives rather rather than uh, people uh further further left of that um or, or even people on the sort of uh, centrist left, um, they, they, they don't seem to be trying to be a left party. Now, the party that is, uh, at least notionally on the left, uh, the Social Democrats, is having a, t- a tough time of things getting its views um, through in the media right now. Um, the w- Would you view this as a time when the Social Democrats are struggling to get their views across? And um, what kind of changes can they make? Uh, is, it about, is it about them having more eye-catching uh, policies? Or is it just about the media not giving them the same amount of time because of the number of scandals and issues in government right now? I guess um, there is not uh, too much appetite for uh, left policies in Estonian society for some reason, because the 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 issues that the social democrats had uh, had been pushing also uh, sort of in in the environmental uh, field and the, and uh, and the left leftish uh, social policy measures um, that has not. Um, uh, earned them any popularity in the in the electorate, so um, there's uh, there's just uh, just uh, this lack of uh, appetite for uh, left policies in Estonian <laughs> electorate. <laughs> Right. So uh, just just to close the opposition issue, um, if, if we if we look at uh, Estonia 200, um, do you think that there are any particular policies that uh, the public seem to be latching on to? Um, is, is there anything that they've promised that uh, is uh, something that the public particularly want? Or is it just a case of them being not the government and not the reform party and presenting a break from what people might see as corruption or see as something that they can't align with? Well, I think uh, the latter is the case. If you would ask anyone who uh, is answering a pollster that uh, I support uh, SD200, I, I bet they were they are not able to name any, any specific policy that uh, appeals to them. <laughs> Because uh, all the SD two hundred has to do is just to be to be there in the in the polls and not say anything controversial, not say anything at all. Just plainly being on the polls list is enough for them right now to gain support. Mm. Uh, the Reform Party has the most seats in uh, of of any party in the Rigikogu. Of course, uh, it it, w- it it is out of government because it wasn't able to form a coalition, and Yuri Ratas and the Centre Party were. Um, but um, what's the future for uh, Reform Yerikond? Because it, it seems to be banking uh, through its leader Kaya Kalas um, and through other prominent figures such as Jürgen Ligi, the former finance minister, it seems to be banking on a kind of return to business as usual, um, much like Joe Biden is perhaps banking on in the United States. But can, can it have that? And does it maybe need to show more contrition for some of the things it got wrong in government? Um, th- 
th there is a sense that um, the Reform Party is the party of uh, if people can't see it, it's probably okay. There were many, many corruption scandals um, in uh, in the Reform Party's time in government. And d does it need to show more contrition and more more of a cleaning up the act, or is this just a red herring in your opinion? Um, well, if you look at the polling data, there's no need for them to to change their strategy. Their their rate their rating has remained um, the highest since the elections. So the question is if they are going if they are able to build a coalition. That's uh, that's the main question. But their electorate, their voter base, is okay with what they are doing because the numbers uh, prove it. So uh, I think. Uh, uh, the Reform Party is um, taking a very uh, pragmatic approach. Why change something um, that works? Indeed. Uh, and uh, on, on that topic, uh, we'll, of course, be back in 2021 for more fun and games with uh, government politics and culture. Uh, and uh, may maybe, who knows, a few more music podcasts. But, uh, uh, Maris, what are your personal hopes for 2021 in Estonia? What, what, do, what do you want to see happen? And um, what would you count as a win in, um, in 2021? I have seen uh, some analysts predict that the local elections in the autumn will br um, bring um, with it a breakup of the government. I think that would be a good thing to happen for 2021. Other than that, I hope uh, the the economy, especially the tourism industry and and uh, adjoining um, industries, will not be hit too hard um, by the by the pandemic winter still ahead of us, and that we all come out of it safe at the end. What about well, you? Yes. Um, I'm. I'm very much hoping that we that we all come out of this safe. And uh, I. I guess um, the the pandemic uh, has presented and it. Um, it, it's it's callous to call it an opportunity because uh, people are dying. You know, three three to five people are dying every day. But I think it's presented an opportunity for um, each of us to reassess what we view as important. Um, uh, it, it's it's caused me and people around me to think of others more I think uh, and um, to look at uh, what is absolutely essential for us to do and what is just nice to have in life um, and um, for, for me it's refocused um, how much I enjoy my day job how much I enjoy my work and actually going into the office and meeting people and uh, I'm very much looking forward to being able to do that uh, without wearing a mask uh, hopefully after the vaccine is uh, widespread in the future so that's my hope for 2021 and uh, yes I, I hope that uh, you enjoy the rest of your Christmas and New Year holidays and keep safe as well you too and all right well, uh, thank you for listening to Crestonia and uh, we'll be back in 2021 and uh, thank you for sticking with us. You can find all the previous podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio and bye for now.